ways, our bodies just falling apart and things happening and out of our control. And boy, we're just reminded of how much we need you and of how temporary this existence is on this life. And so, Lord, for these, our loved ones, we do cry out to you. For Mary Beth, facing a, a future that will have many challenges, Lord, I thank you for making her faith so strong and for sparing her life as you did. But God, strengthen her. I pray that you will provide for their house to have all the alterations that will be necessary for, for uh, her mobility as she gets to come home, help her in her physical therapy, and as she begins to adapt to use the use of prosthetics and, and all that that's involved, Lord, just help her to face each day one day at a time and to know that you are with her. Lord, help Stephen and the kids to just continue to trust you and for Val and Reese too, Lord, just to know that you are absolutely in control. We thank you for sparing her life. And Lord, we just pray for a continued healing in her body and encouragement in her spirit. Lord, for the Delordos, we lift Greg up to you. Thank you for finding that tumor and allowing it to be removed with the amazing technology that you've allowed doctors to develop. But Lord, we know his anxiety about will he be able to do what he did before and his guitar playing especially and in so many other ways, Lord. And I just pray that you'll comfort him and continue to heal his body. We thank you for what you've done so far. And God, just continue to encourage his family. Continue to encourage him, help him to be optimistic. And Lord, for his wife and daughter and others, God, just help them to rely on you, to be the encouragement that they need to be. And God, help your hand to be just really obvious in what they're going through. And Lord, for Frank and for Sophia, and God, help them to know a peace that passes understanding. Lord, help them to now realize they have another treasure in heaven, another reason to look forward to seeing you also. Lord, help Frank to be strong for his daughter. I pray that, Lord, you will come and meet his needs in every way. God, as there's no way to be prepared for something like this to happen for someone so young, Lord, we just pray that you would miraculously bring so much good out of it that they would see your hand involved in all of it. And Lord, for our brother Dean, who's such, a, such an important part of our church, as he just loves all of us, and he and Shirley do, and how they lift us up in prayer constantly, and he's always one to be ready to be there for someone else. And now this week, as he gets to be the patient, Lord, I pray that he will submit himself into your loving arms. I pray that you will help him to feel your peace, to know that you are at work in his body, that you're also taking care of his dear Shirley while he'll be out for a bit. And so, Lord, just bless him. Lord, guide the doctor's hands. And we pray that this would be used by you to restore his body, to be able to function the way that you designed it so he can continue to serve you as he so faithfully has for so many years. Lord, for all these needs and all the other needs, Lord, every one of us, everyone in this building, we have people right now in our families and our friends who are desperately needing of a touch of your hand, of your spirit, Lord. May this help us to recognize our dependence on you. 
And Lord, may we look forward to your return for us. And in the meantime, as we groan in these bodies, help us to see your hand through everything that we do, everything that happens to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, turn in your Bibles now to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Also, if you think of it this week, keep me in prayer. I'm going down to share at a pastor's conference down in Central America, and so I'll be gone. Um, You'll be in good hands this Wednesday. Jerry Hill's going to fill in and and share the word on Wednesday night, and and, uh, next Sunday, um, a pastor... From, from Calvary Coast to Mesa, the guy that's the announcer with Brian Broderson on Pastor's Perspective, I'm blanking out on his name. No, it's not Brian Nixon, it's the other guy. <laughs> he's he's going to kill me. First service, I, I knew it, and, but you'll really enjoy him. I'll think of it halfway through the service. But, uh, but So I'll be gone for just a few days, and But keep me in your prayers as you think of it as I'm sharing with pastors down there. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter (laughs) 8. You know, for all of you people who go, Dave, how do you do what you do without notes? Well, (laughs) there's something to be said for notes sometimes. (laughs) But really, the guy's a dear friend of mine. Huh? Ken Sutton. (laughs) There we go. Thanks. (laughs) Please, next Sunday, don't tell him that happened. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Boy, I'm so glad I got that off. Now I can get to the message. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, as we started it last week, deals with this issue of meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And To us, it seems like kind of a silly thing, but it has some real connections to what we do. For just a little background, if you weren't here last week, in Corinth, there was a lot of meat that was available to eat that had been sacrificed to pagan idols. They would bring the meat before these fake gods, and as they would hold it up, they believed that the spirit of the meat left as they burned part of it. Part of it went to the priests. Part of it was given back to the family to go and eat, but some of the best meat in Corinth was meat that had at one point been dedicated to pagan gods. And so a lot of people who had been saved out of idolatry were real sensitive to it. And there was a real controversy as to whether or not you ought to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And so Paul addresses this. And before going into the whole discussion, as we saw last week, he said, he started out by saying, now concerning things offered to idols, and then he gave three basic preliminary principles that we discussed last week. The first one is, he said, you know, when you have all kinds of knowledge, be careful because knowledge can puff you up and make you proud. But you need to add love to that because love builds up others. Knowledge is self-centered and it builds you up. But ministry really is others-centered and builds others up. And then, as he said in verse 2, his second point was really to be humble. You think you know something, you don't know as much as you think you do, was the way he put it. But the idea was, 
in all that you do, don't get into an argument whereby you think you have all the answers. And don't take a position that's based on that you don't need to hear what anyone else has to say because your mind is already made up. You're not as smart as you think you are. And then in verse 3, as he said also, if you love God, remember God knows. God knows you. And what a powerfully transforming thought that is to realize that God does, in fact, know us. Now, as he continues on with his discussion for the rest of the chapter, beginning with verse 4, he says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols. Okay, back to this initial question, remembering what I told you in the first three verses. He says, We know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is only one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. He said, let's get this clear. There aren't a bunch of gods. There aren't a whole lot of entities that are doing battle in the universe. There are not two sides of a, of a force that are fighting each other, good and evil. He said, there's just one God. Now, in a powerful statement, he says there's one God, the Father and Jesus. So, one God, but actually existing in three persons. And I can't unravel that mystery for you. You can either believe it or not. But he said, we understand this. There, these other things that people are worshiping, these other things that they're bowing down to and sacrificing meat to, there's nobody there. There's nothing there. It's pieces of wood and pieces of metal and ideas that people have. But he said, we have a solid foundation that says they don't matter at all. Now he says, you know, there are a lot of little, little G gods and lords. He said, there are all kinds of things that people follow. But in reality, they aren't gods. They can't make anything. They can't do anything. They are figments of people's imagination. They're nothing more than superstitious expressions connected with inanimate objects and forces that exist in the universe and planetary bodies and things like that. But these people and their imaginations have built them up into something and we realize that they aren't anything. And so this was important to acknowledge. These were the arguments that the Christians were using to say, so no problem eating meat sacrificed to idols. Because Paul agrees with them to a point. He goes, yeah, there aren't other gods. There's only one God. We know who he is. He made us. He made everything. He's in charge. Everything other than the true and the living God is nothing more than a mirage, nothing more than a fantasy. It's just made up pretend gods. But, he goes on, however, verse 7, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. Some people don't get that. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, the word consciousness there in verse 7, and the word conscience and throughout the passage, it's all the same word in the Greek. It really shouldn't be translated as two different words because that becomes misleading. 
whether it's saying consciousness or conscience, what, what the conscience is, what the word means is the capacity to be able to decide what's right and wrong, basically. We often call that our conscience. You know certain things are right and other things are wrong. Now, what he's saying is, okay, we can look at what the world is doing and saying, those idols, they're pretend gods. But he said the problem is some of these people really believe this stuff. And when they are indulging in idolatrous worship, for them, they are following after something that, yes, it's not real. But in reality, it has also damaged them seriously. As it says, their conscience is being weak, is defiled. That word for weak is a word that meant to be ill, to be sick. And so he's saying, and the word defiled means damaged or you know, stained in some way. And so what he's saying is, on the one hand, we have this knowledge that those are just pretend gods. On the other hand, there are people out there for whom that stuff seems very real. They've been living, following after these fantasies, and as a result, following after fake gods, it's hurt them, it's wounded them, it's damaged them, it's made them ill, it's caused them to be marked and affected in such a way, and therein lies the problem. Now he goes on to say, in verse 8, but food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. So he says, let's keep in mind, if we eat that meat, it doesn't help us, other than, boy, it's always good to have a nice steak. But it also doesn't damage us if we don't eat it. It doesn't commend us to God. In other words, God isn't all focused on whether or not you eat this meat or not. He doesn't really care about that. The magic meat, whether you eat it or not, not a big deal to God. But, he says, here's the problem, verse 9, but beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours that comes from your superior understanding becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, so you just go, nothing wrong with the meat, I'll go right to their temple and eat it, check this out. And they see you doing that. Will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened? That same word in the Greek that's translated edify in verse 1, built up, he's going, you're building them up in the wrong thing. It reinforces that that they should eat the things that are offered to idols. And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? Now, what's he saying? Here's what's going on. Somebody has been living their life being believing in a fantasy God, sacrificing meat to that pretend God, and now they've been delivered and they've come to Christ. They realize okay, I'm leaving that fantasy and I'm entering into a realm of reality. So he says, that happens to them and now they see you with your liberty and you're hanging out at their old temple having a barbecue and going, hey, this is great. So naturally they say, oh, I can do that too. And so then they come back to that temple and they begin to partake in that pagan ritual 
And what happens? They become destroyed because they still had a vulnerability to that superstition. For you, it meant nothing. For them, it continues to have that significance. And ultimately, they could fall away from the Lord and be destroyed by this practice. Now, we're not going to take a bunch of time to dive into this particular verse, but boy, what an issue this provides for people who are certain of eternal security, that once you get saved, you're always saved. Now, I don't take a dogmatic position on that one way or the other, but I just want you to understand the ramifications. He's saying, because of your knowledge, a weak brother, brother, (laughs) perish for whom Christ died? A couple of heavy theological issues there. For one thing, the Calvinistic perspective that Jesus only died for the elect, which is called limited atonement, He's saying Christ died for the person who perishes. Problem theologically for Calvinism. And also the fact that you could do something that would influence someone to end up perishing who at one point was a brother, that's rather disturbing as well. So I'm just going to leave you with that. I'm not going to solve it for you. We'll talk about it on another day. But I just want you to know if you thought you knew something, There's a verse that might make you wonder if you knew quite as much as you thought you did. But at any rate, something happens, and this is the point we want to get at, something happens that causes someone to stumble. They're walking, they're a brother, they've left that pretend world and entered into life that's rich with life with Jesus Christ. And something you did caused them to wander back into the temple and, boy, now they're running the risk of being destroyed and perishing as a result of your making them think it's no big deal to go to the temple and eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. And he says in verse 12, but when you thus sinned against the brethren and wound their already damaged conscience, you sin against Christ. Wow. Wow. Well, this would be enough for you to go, man, we need to be careful because people who have been saved out of idolatry, if they see us doing something that looks to them like idolatry, ooh, they might fall right back into that pattern. So therefore, it's probably a good idea for us to be careful about eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Well, I I haven't met a Christian who's a new Christian, weak in the Lord, who has a thing for meat that's sacrificed to idols. So what does this say to me? Well, let's back up and and take a little more broad vision of what he's talking about here. Every one of us, before we came to Jesus Christ, we were worshiping something. We were following after something. There was something that for us was the reason we were living. There was something in our lives that we were attempting to use in order to bring us to a place of fulfillment and satisfaction and deliverance from the the pain and the suffering that's involved in this world. And for most of us, it wasn't bowing down to an idol. But there are a lot of other illusory, phony, simulated means of trying to make life mean something other than sacrificing to an idol. A lot of them. For some people, it's just the world of finance. 
It's just the world of money. They live their lives believing that somehow if they can get enough stuff, if they can achieve enough, you know, assets, they can insulate themselves against whatever fears they have and ultimately purchase some level of peace and satisfaction because they can buy it by seeking after financial gain. And that's one idol that people use, the dollar sign. This is going to save me. There are other people who, in looking for an answer, have tried to find that answer in chemicals, in alcohol or in drugs, these addictive substances that I think if I drink enough, I can deaden the pain. I think if I can just dope myself up enough, life will finally be bearable. And so for them, an artificial substance becomes that meaning to life. Others, it might just be fun. I can have as much fun as I can. Somehow I will inoculate myself against the, the pains of life. For some people, it might be music. For other people, it could just be entertainment, movies and things like that. There are all sorts of things that people use that for them become a god, a fix, a way of dealing with the pains of life that will bring us out somehow whole. And for every one of us, sooner or later we discover that those things were all pretend. They were all fake. They weren't real. They couldn't satisfy. They couldn't meet the need, fulfill that hunger and thirst that we have inside of us. And so for all of us, our, our, all of a sudden we realize, my God isn't going to deliver me. And then we discover that alternative lifestyle, that God in his son Jesus Christ came to die for us, paying the penalty for our sins, giving us an opportunity for a new life. And that alternative is so refreshing because for once, though it's disillusioning to find out that the things we once believed in turned out to not be real, but now we discover something that is real something that can satisfy, something that is worth living for. And so for most of us, we left an idol. We left a pretend way of life, living in a fantasy to discover the reality of the one true and living God. Unfortunately, for some people, though, when they come to the Lord, what they see in Christians is very often people who are still believing just as many fantasies as they were before they were Christians. Because the image so often that, that the church can put off is that Jesus is just another way for you to fulfill your fantasies, the ones you always had. And so the image of the church becomes, here's a way to financial success. If you come to Jesus, he will finally make your business thrive. If you come to him and you'll meet the right Christian people and you abide by the principles of Jesus CEO, wow, finally you'll get as rich as you always wanted to be. And Jesus will satisfy you with money. That's the image that gets put off very often. 
The same thing with so many other issues of life. The people who felt that at one point through physical intimacy they were going to be satisfied. And they come to Jesus instead. And then what they hear is there are all these seminars about how you can be physically satisfied with your mate. That's the Christian image. Or how you can have fun as a Christian. Or how in some other way you, you can become addicted to Christian activity rather than to Jesus Christ, rather than to go back into the, the chemicals that you used to be addicted to. The Christian music business, it becomes, hey, it was entertaining before, but now look how entertaining it is. And in the Christian music business, so often the desire of the musicians is to get big enough that they can cross over and make it in the secular world. And people come over and they go, what is going on here? I thought I was signing up for something different. This is looking a lot like what I left. And so very often, people, though they see Christianity at one point as an alternative lifestyle, once they get into it, they realize this isn't that much different. When I was out there in the world, I was trying to get rich. I became a Christian, and I had Christians trying to sign me up for all kinds of ways of getting rich, just with Jesus. You know, I used to just sit there and numb myself watching television, and now I've got Christian television to numb me. I had my, you know, secular musicians that I, you know, idolized, and now I have Christian musicians that I idolize. And it's like, what's going on here? It becomes really confusing. Is a relationship with Jesus Christ, does it have the capacity to be real and to satisfy us? Or do we need everything that we used to want in the world? Now let's try to go back and get it. And Christians can so often send out a message that says, we're really not so different. Now, on the other hand, I don't think we have to deliberately try to be as different as we can be, but we can't possibly afford to fall into chasing after the phony things that the world has been following and then believe somehow that that becomes Christianity because it doesn't do well. When you try to tap into all the Christian opportunities for business, pretty soon you realize, you know, there are more opportunities in the world. When you try to entertain yourself with Christian entertainment, you realize there are a lot better movies than those Christian movies that are out there, a lot more alternatives. So what happens? People so often drop out, drop along the wayside because we have failed to provide a legitimate and honest alternative and instead, what we give is a, is a sick imitation of that which was never working for us before we found the Lord. So what does this have to do with our lives? We need to be sensitive to how we come across to people who are young in the Lord. Now, I don't think that we should allow our lives to be completely controlled by the scruples of people who believe that they are more spiritual than we are. 
There are plenty of people out there who would never say they're weaker, brother. They think they're way stronger than you, but they want to tell you, oh, you shouldn't drink or you shouldn't smoke or you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't go to movies, you shouldn't do that. What they think means nothing. We don't live our lives following after the scruples of the Pharisees. But we need a sensitivity to newer believers, to people who are young in the Lord, that we make sure that the way we live our life doesn't send them the message that says, see, we're just like the way it was before, just a little better, a little more cleaned up version of it. But we're trying to be like what you were looking for before. The message that we convey desperately needs to be a message that says, when you left those mirages that you were chasing, you made a good decision. And we too have been delivered from following after meaningless attempts to fulfill whatever is missing in our lives. And instead, we've discovered one who does fulfill us. That doesn't mean we aren't involved in music or in business or whatever. But it means that we need a sensitivity that we don't become so obsessed on things that don't matter on things that the world has been trying to pursue, that we end up making new believers think they just entered into a twilight zone. It's a whole lot like what they left, and it looks a whole lot the same, but we just plastered Jesus all over all of it. And we just kind of put Christian in front of whatever it is that we do. We need to be sensitive to that. We need to watch that. Now, there are a lot of things that I could probably have the liberty of doing as a Christian, but I choose not to do it for that reason. For instance, as I mentioned, some people have destroyed their lives. They've been so damaged by abuse of alcohol. Now, alcohol, I don't believe if somebody is going to have a, a drink with dinner a couple days a week or something, I don't think that's going to destroy people. People who have been destroyed by alcohol, it's because they've abused it. But here's the deal. And, and by the way, I believe that right now, if I had a glass of wine, I could drink it, and next week I wouldn't be off in the gutter, you know, I wouldn't be out just, you know, now shooting heroin and everything, because I did. I, I really, I, I have an understanding that if I took a glass of wine, it's not going to turn me into something that I'm not. But I haven't had a glass of wine in a lot of years. Why? Because... I have just seen the damage that it can do to people who abuse it enough that I don't even want to put them in a position of going, you know, hey, it's no big deal. Go ahead. A few drinks is fine. You know, we have people, many of you know Bob Lang, who's here today, who had a long part of his life that he spent chasing satisfaction in a bottle. And it destroyed his life. It just absolutely devastated him. You can read his book, Uncle Bobby's Finally Sober, if you want the details. But Bob, when he had become a new Christian, ran into some Christians who were like, hey, they didn't know his background. And so, oh, they were having a drink with dinner. He could. And it sent him spinning off for months of more destruction in his life. Had they known it would do that, of course they wouldn't do it. And so you can go, yeah, when you come up to somebody who's an alcoholic, don't let them know that you have a drink. I could do that. But the problem is you can't tell someone's an alcoholic by looking at them, some of them. Some of them you can tell. But some of them you can't tell. 
and you don't know. And is it worth it? It's not to me that I would ever inadvertently send someone a message that would say, ah, go ahead, have a drink. Now, Bob hasn't had a drink in lots of years. Personally, I believe today he could have a drink and he would not be off as an alcoholic. But Bob's not going to do that. He doesn't know what it would do, so he's not going to find out. But for us, can we care enough about others that we realize, hey, that is a sensitive area that destroys a lot of people. Maybe it would be, as Paul said, it's not going to make you more godly to drink, and it's not going to kill you to not drink, so maybe you ought to think about it. For me as a pastor, that's the way I look at it anyway. I, just, I know if people would go, yeah, my pastor drinks. There are other things. I, you know, I've talked to you about language. I don't use foul language, but I don't, I, I don't happen to think like a lot of people do that there are certain words that if you use them somehow, oh, you know, it just crushes God or something. He doesn't want us using his name in vain, but there are a lot of very accurate, descriptive, colorful words that sometime would seem to be absolutely appropriate in the situation, and yet I don't use those words. And it isn't because I feel like I would love God less if I used a crude word. And it's really not because of some obscure, you know, biblical, it's much simpler than that. I realize that there are people who live their lives in such anger and only being able to express themselves in a very low and a base way, that that for them was controlling their life. And now God is delivering them from that. And if they hear their pastor talking like that, they might just go, hmm, maybe it's okay for me to do that. And then as they talk a certain way, they'll end up their friends will start coming back because they're like, okay, now we're more comfortable. And as a result, what can happen is someone could get dragged off and off track completely. So for me, it, using a certain word isn't a big deal to me. And when people use words around me, I'm not sensitive to it. I, I've been around enough people who talk like that, that, you know, between being a police chaplain and and having been a school principal for a long time. Believe me, I, I've heard all the words, but without ever being in the military. But those words, I don't need them to express what I, what I need to express. I have to get a little more creative, that's all. But I don't want to hurt somebody by taking a liberty that then may cause someone to feel like, maybe my whole life isn't that different than now. What I want people to see is that the Christian lifestyle is different. There are certain cars that I'd love to drive, but the problem is I'd probably love to drive them too much. There are cars that I've had that I got really cheap that were really cool cars, and I ended up getting rid of them because I just didn't want to look like that stereotype of somebody who's trying to look and impress people that way. It's just easier not to go there, not to do that. And in our lives, sometimes we just have to think in terms of how are we affecting others? What message is this sending? Am I looking like a cheesy imitation of what is not satisfying anyone in the world, and yet it may stumble someone who's just being delivered out of that? And if so, I need to be sensitive to that. Now, again, I can't be paranoid about it. There are some things that we do that may offend someone else. And, and he isn't talking about something that just 
stumbles. We use the word stumble so often as if that kind of offends me. And I have people tell me, you know, when you said that, it stumbled me. Really? I mean, it, it causes you, when I said that, it really causes you to think about not wanting to be a Christian anymore? Well, no. Makes me wonder whether you're a Christian or not. Okay, well, <laughs> that's fine, but that's not what stumbling means. But what we're talking about is, okay, yeah, there are things that we do that hurt each other. Sometimes that's good for us. Sometimes we build up a, some knowledge and information as a result of it. But what Paul's talking about is those cases where we can present a picture that makes the church just look like the world. It just looks like what you left. And in a vulnerable spot where you're still, you gave up those fantasies, but they still seem real to you. You know, there might be for some people, another God that people have today is the desire to somehow find a relationship that will be physically satisfying. And more and more today, because of fear of disease and things like that, people are finding those fantasy relationships on the internet. And they're living in this crazy, how, how stupid to think that an image could satisfy you. Just as stupid and sick as bowing down to an idol, really. But if someone has been saved... They're going to be sensitive in certain areas, maybe to the way someone dresses, or maybe there are certain places they shouldn't even go. And if I tell them, oh, you know, come on down, hey, check out that girl, you know, let's thank God for how beautiful she is. What's that going to do? What's that going to do to somebody who is just still having withdrawal from this fantasy life that can't satisfy them, that will destroy them? So it's, we're talking about just being sensitive. We're talking about going, you know what? Let's all agree. Everything other than faith in Jesus Christ is an illusion. It will not satisfy you. And yet every one of us in one way or another, we followed some phony dream and we left it when we came to Jesus Christ. Let's not make Christianity look like another version of that. And let's just be sensitive to how we do affects others. Let's go out of our way to make sure that they see and understand you truly did join an alternative lifestyle when you became a Christian. And Paul finally says in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. He goes, look, if... And by the way, the word meat doesn't just mean meat, it's food. He goes, if I had to, I'd give up food completely. Rather than to do something that would cause someone who's entered into a relationship with the Lord to be sucked back into following and believing a lie and a fantasy. Is that our heart? Do we so desire that people appreciate the difference of being a Christian, that we are willing to give up whatever it would be that we might have the liberty to do because we just want people to realize, no, there's a better way. You didn't just trade one dream for another. You didn't trade one game for another. You didn't trade one fantasy for another. You didn't trade one business for another. You've entered into a whole different realm. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. 
I hope it's worth it to you. Because people's eternity is at stake. We need to be sensitive to that. Let's pray. Lord, help us to just be sensitive. We know things that we do will sometimes hurt people, but Lord, help us to have our eyes open to things that will destroy new Christians. Lord, help us not to be so sensitive to old Christians that we forget about the new ones. But God, help us to live our lives in such a way that when people leave their fakeness in order to discover that which is real, you, that when they look at us, they'll understand immediately that there really is a difference. Lord, show us where that difference should be. Keep us pure. Lord, help us to not see how close to the edge we can walk, but help us to live radical lives that have been so changed by you that we can see the dead end that is every alternative to a relationship with you. Oh, Lord, help us to be sensitive and to learn these truths and to grow up. In Jesus' name, amen.